Jazz Podcast. My name's Christopher Peck. I'm Jeffrey Lean. I'm Tom Everman. We've got a fantastic set of releases to discuss on this episode. Uh, that being Blue Note Tone Poet Audiophile Vinyl Reissue Series. That's one that's headed up by a gentleman named Joe Harley. And uh, we're so glad to have him in for an interview on this episode. We've been waiting to drop this one. It was a great interview, huh, Tom? Very much so. You can see it in print on archivejazz.com. You sure can. And uh, so let's get right down into it. This is a series that's been going, and they did their first release back in February. Um, And these are all from the original analog tapes, essentially. Um, And so it was very neat to hear Joe talk about that process and bringing some of these old recordings back to life. Any, any jump off the page to you right right here, Tom? We're looking at a list of unassailable classic records top to bottom. Yeah. Chick Corea, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs. This is mm-hmm. more classic. Mm-hmm. And uh, et cetera, et cetera. Sam Rivers' Contours, one of his major, major records. And then some recordings that were not, these are not all strictly Blue Note. Uh, Gil Evans' New Bottles Old Wine was on World Pacific. That was not part of Blue Note back in the mid-50s when it was recorded. And uh, a lot of them are just real standard classic blue note. Yeah, Lee Morgan, Cornbread, it's... Clubhouse, Dexter Gordon. Um, yeah, all that stuff. And, and randomly, and then Cassandra Wilson. She's the only one that uh, from the two thousands. Yeah, that looks like. The and most that, if you read one. the interview, is primarily put up there because they found the original tapes and it was all done in analog. Oh, really? Which is, you know, like finding a gold nugget for an audiophile who's converting to uh, vinyl. They they put that together from the found tapes that uh, had been had not been even looked at or played since they mastered the CD. Wow! And uh, the sound is extraordinary. Yeah, and and it was neat to to speak with Joe and hear how that how that came to be. And um, he was working with an indie label called Music Matters, and they were doing some reissues of classic Blue Note albums. And then apparently, according to him, Don Wass approached him and. Uh, they they started this series, which it's it's been very uh, successful, and there's still some good ones to come. Looks like uh, some ones at the beginning of September. Donald Byrd and Chant and Stanley Turrentine with Hustlin'. And, um, yeah, some Grant Green to come in October. And uh, some Hank Mobley down there at the bottom. Any Any other ones? that you guys are familiar with? Well, they're all great. I mean, Tina Brooks was a fantastic saxophone player who did not last long and did not make a lot of recordings. And then uh, Stanley Turrentine on the other end of the spectrum was somebody who had uh, a huge career, originally on Blue Note, and then eventually one of the very big-selling CTI artists in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. 
I definitely want to hear all these. When yeah, we get, right we're away. Done here. <laughs> it's gonna be amazing. Yeah, they're all on 180 gram vinyl, so I mean the the quality is second to none. And like we like we say, these are from the original master tapes, and uh, it sounds like Joe really you know was someone that was you know careful about the process and very involved and very passionate about it. Wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. He and he gets the music too. So he's remastering analog and digital at times. Uh, yes, because the Joe Henderson was digital. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So it's just a matter of going in and cleaning up the sound, not as doing as much work as you would on the vinyl. Interesting. I assume. Yeah, I'm sure they have their challenges. And he gives a good, great description of what rotting tapes look like or tapes that are beginning to fall <laughs> apart. Because, <or, laughs> you know, you, you think tapes, and they're they are many stored in different ways. Some are nicely maintained in a vault. Some are nicely maintained in a vault. And then, uh, like recently, was discovered that uh, the vaults burn down sometimes and uh referring to the uh, master tapes that were lost in a warehouse fire in yes los angeles that was just acknowledged this year yeah i keep on seeing all the masters coming up you know the list on all that and really um one one of the great things about the blue note heritage was it wasn't moved around a lot um there was a blue note which owned it and then emi liberty Bought the, bought the company and then moved the uh, tapes en masse to their storage. So it's not like they were kicked around a lot. They went from Rudy's, Rudy, who was a meticulous engineer and maintainer of uh, of the LPs and the masters. Of course, the uh, label keeps the masters, but he would make sure they were all in very good shape and impeccable. Yeah, that's important stuff. And uh, according to him, he said that actually the type of tape which they recorded onto was actually you know very well suited for preservation he said it's really tough and um, he says they sound just like they were made yesterday so it's good that you know they were stored correctly and you know we can remaster them and and if you want to hear about the term baking a tape which is literally what they do if a tape a master tape is stuck together they put it in an oven at a low temperature which loosens it i thought it was just some sort of uh easy reference but uh no they really do bake it yeah Mm -hmm. and you can read it right there yeah you could just throw in a you know a stouffer's pizza at the same time (laughs) just take care of everything put a little salt on it you got a remaster (laughs) there you go yeah it's 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 a really neat process but if you're yeah if you're a jazz fan and you're into reissues and you're into this this interview is essential it really gives you a description of what rudy did to compensate for the fact that he did not have a big low end bass recording when he made these records, but he knew how to highlight the overtones that those bass tones would have created without having the bass tone. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you get the feeling of greater depth um, right? without actually probably the frequencies being created that way. Right. Interesting. And, and Interesting. he talked about kind of how that impacted, you know, or that impact because of what the tape or what the records were being played on back in the day, you know. Right, as technology changes. Exactly. The the sound quality, you know, they had to kind of compensate that for that, like you said. Yeah, Tom, I totally agree. I think this was one of our best interviews. And, I mean, this guy's an expert. And And a music fan. Yeah, absolutely. So with that... And had had great respect for the original engineer, Rudy Van Gelder, and just the the way the tapes were stored, the way the sound was recreated, and... uh, it was the sound was up to Rudy. Once he delivered the tapes, it was up to the label to keep keep them uh, 
safe and stored. Mm -hmm. So with that, let's go ahead and cut to the interview. Here's audiophile engineer Joe Harley. So how long ago did um, you get contacted by Don to uh, bring bring these things back to life? We had been aware of each other for well. I'd been aware of Don, who 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 doesn't know Don was, you know, um, or at least be aware of him. But we were working on uh, a Charles Lloyd record uh, that eventually um, became known as Spanish Gardens. So we were over at um, United um, recording, doing that. We took a break one day, and Don. Um, as he had done a few times over the years, was telling me how much he loved um, the Music Matters Blue Note uh, vinyl reissues. And he was saying, um, you know, I just, you know, I do mine and then I get the same title that you guys put out and I put them together and I just don't know how you do it. You know, it just blows my mind. Why does yours sound so much better? (laughs) And so... um, you know, I thanked him and, and sort of explained a little bit about what we do. And then we went on with, um, with recording that day. So the next day we go in and, um, I think I said it was United's actually East West studios, which, um, used to be part of that same complex. Anyway, we went in to, to do, uh, to do some more recording. And during the break, he said, uh, Hey, I'm really serious about, um, I want you to do that for us. Would, would you consider doing the same thing? You know, same jackets, same mastering, everything. I want to do it exactly like you guys are doing it. Would you consider doing that? And I said, yeah, you know, if, if it's, um, if every detail is done the same way, then sure. How could I say no? And that's, that's how it started. Well, let's back up a second. Um, you know, for us in the business and mastering and taping and things like uh, terms like that, um, we all tend to take it for granted. But a lot of people don't really know what mastering is. Um, sure. it's, it's a word you you figure you, you maybe know. But from someone like you, what truly is when you, you go to a vault, preferably one that's fireproof, and take yeah. out a tape and remaster it, what are you doing? If it's been mastered before, what does a remaster? What does a remaster do? So, um, you know, when we first um, started, when I first really had heard Blue Note Masters, and this goes back, this was 2007, when um, I was in a mastering studio with Kevin Gray, and we did our first two titles um, for the Music Matters series. And I put up the first first tape, which... Um, I just think what that was, um, but we put it up and and we're just stunned by what we were hearing on the tape because I had lived uh, like so many other people with my records with original pressings for years and years, and you know you start to to think well that's the sound the records are the sound, and I put up the tape and it was dynamic as hell. Um, there was a clarity and an ease and just um like you were you know like you were a fly on the wall in the studio and so our goal at that time changed you know to to me there's two ways to do reissues or or remastering one is to hold up as your ideal 
the original LP pressing and do what you can to, to emulate that. The other is to try to, as best you can, emulate what's on the master tape. So we chose the latter. Once we had put up a few of the Blue Note Masters and realized how amazing some of these tapes sound, we, we changed what we thought we were going to do, which was to try to, you know, uh, issue these records to sound as much as possible like the original issues. We changed our philosophy and decided to, to try to um, convey what the actual master tapes sound like, which is a different thing. And what, what Rudy mm-hmm. Van Gelder did um, during, during those times in the 50s and 60s, when uh, during the classic Blue Note heyday, I thought was, was genius. It was incredibly clever because he had to, you think about it, you know, the bane of that label's, you know, this little label Blue Note in those days, bane of their existence was returns. Why do people return records? They return records because, especially in those days, because they skip. Why do they skip? There's probably too much bass energy. And the turntables of that time were, you know, I mean, some people had really good turntables, but by and large, it was um, everything from kiddie turntables to... um, to, to turntables we consider pretty substandard these days. Well, all you had to do was look at the needles that people used back then. Exactly, exactly. So what he did, and we know this by looking at the notes and looking at his notes, um, I thought was incredibly clever. He would roll off the low end, the extreme low end, um, and he did that. Well, can you tell us what, for the lay listener, what rolling off means? Oh, okay. You just turn it down or? Yeah, yeah. You you reduce the extreme low end. By that, I mean um, frequencies that, let's say, you know, 30 hertz up to maybe something like 80. And then he put a bump in around um, 90 or 100. So what you hear on those records, you get a sense of bass. You hear, you, you think you're hearing bass. And, and you are to a degree but you're not hearing full low end extension. Are you, are you uh, then getting the harmonics from above that bass note? Yeah. Yeah. You, you get that, you get a sense of, of low end. And then the systems of, of those days, um, you know, I'm 67. So I was around, um, they tended to be, um, lossy in the top end, meaning the top end extension wasn't so great. Most speakers, most electronics, tended to be droopy in the top end, um, meaning that they weren't, um, treble extension was hard to come by um, with that gear. So Rudy, again, genius, clever. He puts a bump in in the presence reason, region, you know, where horns, cymbals, that sort of thing. And so the net result is for most people with the turntables and rigs of that day, those original LPs sounded lively and direct in a way that um, most people um, was a, was a revelatory to most listeners. It was there was a clarity that was um, sort of uncommon and great for that time. You know, fast forward to what we were dealing with in 2007, we make the assumption that the gear, the turntables, and the gear 
the whole setup. For most people, they're not all going to be crazy audiophiles, but for most people, is going to be um, more extended in the low end, and it's going to be more extended in the top, and capable of more dynamic contrast. So that's where we made the decision to emulate the actual master tape and convey as much as we could of what was on that master. So it was a very definite um, aesthetic decision that was made at that time that we've held to um, ever since. Was there any kind of restoration process with, with you know, dealing with the tapes again, or were they in pretty good shape, or what was the story there? So, so you know, that's a, that's a great question. Um, ironically, the older tapes, so tapes from the 50s up to about, 63, um, around about that area, were mostly on um, Scotch 111, which is incredibly tough, incredibly, um, those tapes, you put them up, they sound like yesterday. I mean, you just don't hear the degradation at all. God knows what's in those things. You know, we we joke about, um, you know, they're whale oil or whatever, you know. <laughs> Um, what what was in those things, but they are incredibly tough. And ironically, the newer tapes, you know, the, the, the formulations that came later are much more fragile. So the old, the old tapes, you never have to bake them. The, the most I run into is you fix splices. Um, uh, splices will come loose and you have to fix those. Not, it's not a big, not a big thing. And then the actual sound, the sound and everything on the tape holds up really well. Better than a, yeah astonishingly well especially that that scotch 111 is just um it's like a time capsule uh, people worry about degradation with that stuff you, you really don't run into it um, as you get into the more modern formulations now you have to frequently bake the tape as they say um because the um the adhesives you know the the the, the tape itself begins to dry out when you say bake, and you're so so our readers know you're talking bake. about baking, taking a reel yep. of tape and putting it in the oven. Yep. Or a oven. Yeah. We we can do that, although thankfully, um, you know, it's a nerve wracking process. It we've done it a million times, know what to do. Thankfully, um the folks over at Capitol um do that for us. Um I'm going tomorrow to do some mastering and so they've already done that. Um, if those tapes need it, um, one of the tapes we're doing tomorrow is an old Hank Mobley title that won't need to be baked because that'll be on Scotch 111. So when you bake uh, it, you, they heat it up and that allows the tapes to loosen and then you can transfer it then, uh, it, it, or, or copy it, it? It, gets rid of, it gets rid of, um, the tapes get sort of sticky, um, when they're stored. And so, you know, right away when you put it up, um, it, there, it starts to adhere kind of to the heads and you can tell right away, you, you want, you wouldn't want to play anything very long. So you, you, you can tell that's going on right in the leader tape. And when you run into that, you, you take it off, you bake it, and then the tape, um, dries and, and performs great once you do that. But if you run it without it, then it tends to get very sticky which is not a good um, is not good for the tape and certainly not good for sound. And you can play it more than once after it's baked. 
yes. Yeah, you know, you're probably good for a few days. You are good for a few days, but after that, um, you'd need to do it again. And on mm-hmm. those tape formulations, you'll see little notes on there, you know, baked on such and such a date. Um, you know, you can tell when it was checked out because you'll see, okay, um, this tape was baked in 2004. So somebody checked it out to do something in 2004. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I hear people talk about um, how the old tapes, you know, they must be losing their fidelity. And the answer is, it depends. It depends. It's not as simple as that. Um, a lot of the, rec- at least Rudy, you know, who was a gearhead um, into all kinds of new technologies as they came out, um, he became a big fan of Scotch 111. And thankfully, uh, he did because those tapes are in great shape. I've never talked to anyone who's actually baked a tape before. I've been reading about it for many <laughs> years. But actually, I always just kind of cringe and wonder how it works. But uh, thank you for that. Well, um, it's very low temperature. Um, you know, it's um, not like baking a loaf of bread or anything. It's low temperature for um, a, a given period of time. It's just enough to um, to cause the stickiness to go away. And then then you're good to go. Well, let's let's talk for a minute about the actual the music on some of these tapes coming out. Um, yeah, because you were these are said is these aren't all blue notes. I mean, the first one you have coming or the first one out was Chick Corea. Now he sings. Now he sobs, which was actually yeah. a solid state recording. Exactly. Um, which yeah. which is a catalog that could use quite a few reissues because it's an extraordinary catalog. Will be. Uh, dipping into it again um, for the series next year mm-hmm. uh, because this series is is continuing on um, the two I'm doing tomorrow are the last two in the cycle for 2018 um, that was 18 titles um, about half of those have come out uh, this month there'll be four coming out this month so mm-hmm. this will be a big month for that series um, and then uh, next month we'll start We'll start mastering titles for 2020. But yeah, to, to get to your question, um, when this thing was conceived, I thought, you know, rather than so a, a couple of things, rather than just focusing exclusively on Blue Note titles, we wanted to to think more in terms of the Blue Note family of labels. So Solid State, Pacific Jazz, World Pacific. United Artists. Uh, yeah. United Artists, yes, and not just be, and, and I didn't want to reissue the same titles I'd done before, um, because those are out recently enough that it was, you know, I didn't see the point in redoing what had been done five years before. So we specifically looked for, you know, titles that that I really love and find have musical merit that are not as well known. And some of the hidden gems, also some of the titles that, um, if they had been released, were released in the 80s um, in a very limited fashion. Um, Some of those titles only were released on LP in Japan uh, in the 80s. So, and for all practical purposes, have been forgotten. Well, for example, the Gil Evans New new Bottle Old Wine on World Pacific, which has not not been around for a while, and it's got a unbelievable band with Cannonball Adderley and Paul Chambers and Blakey and 
Julius yeah. Watkins and just extraordinary. Um, how did that one sound? So that's an interesting story. Um, the master had been, um, there were questions about um, whether the master existed. And certainly the, um, I had several copies of it. They sounded okay, but I had this feeling like they weren't, that I wasn't hearing what was really on the tape. So we sent somebody into the vault and um, first we had to go through, um, you know, it was an intern and, um, and he said, so Bill Evans, right? And I said, no, no, no. Gil. Yeah, Bill. No, no. G-I-L. Oh, okay. Gil Evans. He goes, well, okay. I'm, you know, there's some stuff here, but I have to tell you, it's really old. And, um, and I said, well, uh, that's good. Because we're talking about a session from 58, 57 or 58. And um, he goes, it just says RCA on the box. And I said, okay, that's good. Can you turn the box over and uh, take a picture and send it to me? And he did. And I have, I have the picture. <laughs> uh, but anyway, there was the master. And I said, perfect. Um, give it to Jack um, to check out and have it sent to Kevin, that's what we're looking for. So we get it, we put it up, and Kevin Gray and I just, I mean, we <laughs> he had this big grin, I had this big grin. It was like one of those holy crap moments where, you know, the band came to life. You know, there it was. And you can probably and, hear every uh, instrument placed there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was like... Um, you know, I just like the record because it's it's like, uh, you know, Miles Davis, Miles Ahead or something. But the lead instrument is is Cannonball instead of Miles. And uh, so, yeah, that was um, a wonderful experience. Um, bringing that bringing that one back to life was I mean, I, I when I heard the test pressings, I got emotional um, because, you know, it just sounded so great. It's fun. Let's, when those things happen, it's really fun. Yeah. Well, let's fast forward. Um, say Joe Henderson, State of the Tenor. I mean, that was mm. kind of a, not a breakthrough record for him, but it was one that really was one of his late, late career triumphs, I thought. And uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It was not what, um, 1985 or so. It's just Ron Carter and Al Foster. Ron Carter um, and Al Foster live at the Vanguard. Um, so that session um, was a digital recording. Oh, really? And yeah, that was not analog. So they went in there with a Mitsubishi, Mitsubishi X80 machine. You know, most of everything that's being put out um, on the Tone Poet series is analog. There are some cases where, um, you know, if it was recorded digitally and it has musical merit, I'm fine with putting a digital one out here and there, too. But you have to be really, really careful with digital. Um, it's as uh, susceptible to issues, in my opinion, as analog. So the first thing we had to do was get a, a Mitsubishi X80 machine to play this back correctly. And that took some doing. But um, uh, some of the people at Cap Tower, Capital Tower um, were able to locate a machine. Um, we used that in the mastering. And the result is... Um, is really good. 
people people um, online who I've I've seen analog purists. I'm kind of one myself. Um, say I'm not. I'll buy all the rest. I'm not going to buy that one because I see no point in putting digital uh, music on on vinyl. I don't see the point. Why don't you just buy the CD? And I asked everyone, you know, to hang in there and um, and try this and see what you think. And if you have the CD, go ahead and compare them. Anyway, what's happened is the record's selling incredibly well, and people are. Um, amazed at how much better it sounds Mm. on vinyl than it did on on cd and it's just you know how you're doing it um the converters you're using there's there's a lot of things you have to go you have to optimize when you're working with digital and it's doing so well that um, it became really clear that we were we needed to do the second title there's a volume one volume two Mm -hmm. we started with volume two oddly enough um, so next year we're going to do volume one because, uh, I, the demand is, is there. Are there sure. any unissued tapes that you could put together a volume three or is they pretty much capture everything? You know, there, I think there are, um, so that's, a, you know, um, that's a possibility maybe for 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, now whether those just repeat songs, you know, the different takes of, um, of the same songs right. I don't or, if, yeah, or if they clearly took the much better version for the first one yeah um, don't don't know that yet um uh but I, so, someone else asked me that the other day and and i need to do some research and find out and you know i'm also i'm uh, very happy to see that uh, the cassandra wilson glamoured yeah. disc is on there because i mean new moon daughter was a huge record for her and we i was working there when she was signed and came and uh, made those fantastic discs. And this was one that was not her first. I think it was, was it her third for the label maybe? Um, uh, that, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And, but it's a marvelous record. It didn't get quite the attention that the first two did. Uh, simply, I think, because people got used to her making fantastic discs. But uh, right. um, it, it's, it's very nice to see that you chose this one to come out with on the LPs. Well, and as it turned out, um, you know, when I looked through the what the assets were, um, it turned out there was seven boxes of analog tapes, and uh, I assumed that that ta- that title was going to be in um, on digital, but they had recorded recorded it analog, but the tapes had never been assembled before, and. Um, so we took the time to assemble it into a side A, side B, side C, side D, and so that's a full analog release, and it sounds it sounds incredible. Is there any other challenges um, as far as doing a remastering like this, given that it is jazz music? Is there you know you talked a little bit about Rudy's techniques, and is is there anything else that you kind of have to do for jazz that you might not have to do for other genres or anything? Um, you know, so every era of um, Blue Note um, has its own challenges. And what I mean by that is when we run into a, a tape, um, you know, it depends on is it early hack and sack? Is it mid hack and sack, Rudy, late hack and sack? Um, is it early Inglewood Cliffs? Because, um, 
Rudy moved his studio in, I believe, 58 or 59 from his parents' living room in Hackensack, New Jersey, to his own custom studio in Inglewood Cliffs, which was a much bigger room and, um, and acoustically very different. And he began to change some of his microphones as well. So, yeah, it, it, you run into different sorts of things um, depending on the time. At this point, we've done hundreds of them. So when, when uh, Kevin Gray and I get together, um, we, know, you know, we know by looking at the date, okay, we're going to probably run into this. Um, we're going to have to watch out for that. The thing that tends to make it easier is that, by and large, the Blue Note sessions, Blue Note recordings, were all done on a single day. Um, meaning if you um, if you're going to go in there and do you know what's a what's a good example um, Sam Rivers contours so it's all recorded in one day so you never run into a situation where okay one track's recorded in one studio different tracks recorded in a different studio so the the commonality is there um, so you don't you don't run into the same things you would run into with a modern recording that uh, could be done in many different studios. Um, it t- tends to be very consistent. Well, with Rudy, and, you were and, dealing with you were dealing with one man, one genius in his room that he yep. had built. He he essentially set the rules for what went on there, and that was it. Yeah, um, which maintains yeah. a certain continue continuity, no matter you know if he's recording for Prestige or Blue Note or um, and he was even mastering, I guess, what uh, Vox classical records too there yes you know it's funny you look at those old boxes and um it doesn't say rudy van gelder it says uh dr rudolph van gelder (laughs) (laughs) that is classical alter ego or something yeah 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 it's classical (laughs) alter ego um but yeah um in some ways uh because of that it's um easier after you've done a bunch it's easier uh, if you know the time period to to know um, how to proceed. Well, speaking of time periods, if if you don't mind, I'll just throw out some that uh, I think you should work on next. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, like Bill Evans and Jim Hall, some of that solid state stuff is uh, really Money Jungle, of course, which was a much more b- bigger record, but uh, well, the peaceful so side money, of Billy Strayhorn. Some of those things just are kind of lost, and they were wonderful. The so money recordings. jungle is um, I have set for next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna do that one. The Jim Hall and Bill Evans title that's been done relatively recently by, oh. by Multifidelity. So that one is I, I probably won't just because it's available in a in a premium edition um, uh, relatively recently. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, Duke, the Money Jungle is on the list. Well, absolutely. Well, Joe, this has been great. I mean, I, I have a feeling I could probably talk about this for hours, and uh, then it just makes me want to start pulling out records. But this will be on the site, and we'll be featuring the new releases. And uh, it's just great talking to you. I really appreciate it. Same here. It's fun. Um, if you ever want to do it again, let me know. Happy okay. We, we very well might. Well, great. Thank great. you. Great talking yeah. to you. Appreciate it. Same, guys. We'll be in Um, touch. All right. Take care. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Cheers. 
Joe, thanks for dropping by and filling us in on this incredibly interesting history of master tapes and storage and Blue Note tapes, and uh, hope to have you back again. Absolutely. And we've got an entire list of all of the available Tone Poet series, and those are on 180-gram vinyl, and a good fair amount of them are on sale right now. So if you're listening, go over there and get them while they're on sale. There's a good price on them. And uh, it's definitely something that you're, you you pay for what you get, and these are well worth it, I'd say, and some really cool packaging and, and some fantastic recordings. Classics. There you go. Well, I think that'll just about do it. Until next time, guys. Have a good week. Christopher Peck. I'm Jeffrey Lean. I'm Tom Everett. Thanks for listening. Thank you.